Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and he will, death shall be no more. Neither, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne, uh, a throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have their, this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, sexual immoral, um, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may be seated. It may not be a, a quickly apparent as to why those two texts uh, relate to one another, but I hope to make that more clear as we get in here this morning. I just want to say, first of all, Merry Christmas. And uh, I really do hope and pray and extend my personal, me and Amanda and our family's personal hopes and wishes and that you and your family will have, whether it's already happened, hopefully begun and will continue through the next several days. It'll be just filled with the rich adornment of Christ and whatever it is that you do over the next several days and that your days will be filled these last uh, week or so of the year with rich fellowship with family or friends and i know if you uh that is not the case for you i know there are people in this room who would like to extend that to you and so please know that that's available to you and if you are not sure where to find that you can certainly talk to me afterwards and we'll make sure you get connected with people who are uh, would love to have you have that experience over the next several days but as we gather here on this lord's day morning this second to last Lord's Day morning of the year, Christmas Eve. It collides well today. We come to the end of this Advent preaching series that we typically do each year. And for the past few weeks, if you've been with us, you know that we've endeavored to immerse ourselves into the larger story of the Bible in which the incarnation of Christ, that is his first Advent, his first coming, inaugurates and points us to the future consummation of God's promises for his people and points us to that second coming, which will find our ultimate rest. And so my focus this morning, um, by the end of this, and while you f you'll find while Revelation 21 is the passage that we will spend most of our time in this morning, is to plant us, by the time this is over with, in what incarnation is meant to do which is to point us to that second coming. It is meant to help us hold fast to that future hope and by beholding the inheritance that desires to come. And sometimes that's very easily blurred or, and we're blinded from those things because we get so immersed in this moment and we forget about that. 
We don't often think about that. So in order to get us there, my, what I want to do for the next couple of minutes is just do a quick review of the last few weeks in order to kind of build up momentum towards our thinking through Revelation 21, 1 through 8. You remember week one, right after Thanksgiving, we took an exhaustive look at the wonderful theology that undergirds O Come, O Come, O Emmanuel, which in some sense we said was a comprehensive theology of, the, of Advent, and in one way, it's a comprehensive theology of the Bible. And it reveals the larger themes that run underneath this time that we set aside to think about, reflect about, celebrate, and most importantly, praise God for the Advent, I mean, the Incarnation. And so then we continued that in week two by surveying, who is this child? Who is this child king? What child is this, the song? We explored that day, this Christ child, the king. He is indeed the king. And he can be considered from the Bible, numerous texts and how we pulled all those threads together as much as we were able to in that time, um, looking at the kingly office of Christ. And then we took weeks three and four and we dove into this kingly office of Christ. And we explored two important themes of his kingly office. Week three, O Holy Night, the holiness, the character of God who comes to deliver his people from their sin, from, their, from death, from the curse. And then we landed in a very, very safe place last week in the comfort of the king. And that we as his people now rest in that comfort and we can sing like uh, uh, God rest ye merry gentlemen. And we can have glad tidings of comfort and joy and we can do that both now, and we certainly will have it in the future. And so today we come to Christmas Eve, and we try to pull all that stuff together, and uh, we consider the greatest of carols, Hark the Herald, Angels Sing. Now, I know that's debatable, but who, needs, who doesn't need a little controversy on Christmas Eve, yeah? Um, but it is. It is probably, it's certainly one of the most recognizable ones. Again, I go back to Peanuts. I go back to Charlie Brown. And we can all kind of hear it. When you hear Harold Angels sing, do we not think about those last seconds as they're standing around the Christmas tree and they begin to belt out, Hark the Herald Angels sing. You know, the question that came to mind as I reflected on this song leading into today for the last two or three weeks and really what's been the question behind the entire series for me is, why does the incarnation result in such exuberant praise? I mean, really, why do angels sing? Why do magi travel hundreds of miles, thousands of miles to come hear about this king that they hear in folklore, for them at least, that's what it was, this, uh, of, of this king who is going to come when they see this star. What causes uh, shepherds to leave their duties, leave their shepherds by night to come and behold this king? Why does the incarnation result in such exuberant praise? And I think it comes from, at least for me, I'm going to focus in on verse 2 of the song. Let me just remind you what we sang just a few minutes ago. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail incarnate deity, 
And now wait on it, wait for it. Pleased as man with men to dwell. God pleased as man, sent his son wrapped and veiled in flesh to do what? With men dwell. With men dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, God with us. Hark the herald angels sing. Yes, there is nothing else that is more natural to do when you are presented with such wonderful truth than to re rejoice with um, exuberant praise. As you think about that verse, you think about why we sing that at the church each year. The exuberation, of course, is found there right in the text. As God comes veiled in flesh, what is it that is enabled for, the first time, for, for man to do that he is unable to do? God veils himself in flesh so that what? We might behold his glory. We might see the Godhead. This is what Moses wanted. God said, you can't, you can't handle it. And so what did God do when he had him in a cleft? He was veiling himself to some degree so that he could behold this without being completely destroyed by the sheer magnitude of God's glory. It's all been leading to this moment of God veiling himself, God condescending to his people so that he might come to us and then at the end of the verse be pleased as man so that he may what? Dwell with us again. And so as God veiled in flesh, we might, he might want to do what is necessary to condescend to us, to come to us and dwell with us. And this task is his and his alone to do. It wasn't something that we could do for ourselves. We, we, couldn't, we couldn't do these things. God had to do everything necessary for himself to dwell with us, and that's what he does in the incarnation. He veils himself in flesh, comes, dwells among his people, of course, then offers himself as the perfect sacrifice so that we might not die for our sins, but he might absorb all of our sins for us in our stead, yes? And so this takes us back to the garden what was lost there and subsequently, subsequently points us forward to Revelation 21. And it is the great hinge of Scripture. Everything points towards this moment, and everything from this moment hinges on this moment. It's just what is. And so it does cause exuberant praise for Christ's church. And so this morning I want to offer you four reflections from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 8. You will be happy to know that originally I had eight reflections, and then it moved to six reflections, then five, and I think I was going to drive Andrea mad. She's like, have you changed the title in this thing? She did. She texted me. I was like, yeah, I've changed it. And I've changed it quite a few times. Um, and now we've landed on four. Four that I hope will leave you, leave you praising God. First reflection. And it comes from Revelation chapter, one, uh, chapter 21, verse 1. Our hope is no longer tied to this dying realm. Then I saw it, new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. The removal of the first heaven and the first earth reminds you and I when we think about it rightly that the fatal infection that 
is within us or was within us before Christ, knowing Christ, that fatal infection of evil and sin and the dominion of evil and sin and death in the cosmic order has been eradicated. This is true for us. This is what will happen that day when Jesus returns. It, it will give way to God's creation of a new cosmic order, which we'll explore in just a few moments, where sin and suffering and death will forever be banished. It's something for us to hard for us to get our minds around, if we're honest, right? We go, oh, what is, when do we get there, Lord? How long, O oh Lord, the psalmist would say, and we say with the psalmist. This current old order has, as we all know, we feel it, right? You feel it, you listen, and you go, it's grown tired, hasn't it? And it's tired because it keeps doing the same thing over and over again. And it keeps expecting something different to happen, but nothing different happens. Why? Because it has been in bondage to decay. As Revelation, I'm sorry, Romans 8, 21 and 22 say, it has been groaning in the pains of childbirth, awaiting that day when the heavens will be dissolved. And here we have in Revelation 21 a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness will dwell and will be established forever and ever, and it will replace that old realm. Now I know theologians, good theologians, they disagree on whether or not we're talking about a uh, a complete destruction of the present realm into, and then a complete uh, uh, construction of a new realm or a, uh, or a complete renewal of the old realm. And, and, and this, then that debate goes on and it will go on. Good minds, good love, Jesus-loving minds differ on that. But the main point here is that as we see, as we've been promised, it's been said throughout the entire scriptures that it's not just in the New Testament that reveals these things. It's, it's been in the Old Testament the entire time too. We have looked extensively at Isaiah, Isaiah at different times in 65, 17 through 24, 25, excuse me, show us this pro promise of a new and better Jerusalem, a new and better city that's ours, that we will dwell in forever with God. Consider verse 17, for behold, Isaiah says, I create a new heavens. God says through Isaiah, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall be remembered I'm sorry, the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in, what, in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in her, my people. No more shall be heard in it uh, in the sound of weeping and the, and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives um, but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner of hundred and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruits. They shall not build, and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of the tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be offspring of the blessed of the, blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they, are, while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, says the Lord. 
This is Isaiah, of course, speaking to, as we've said before, the people of Judah who have been put in exile. But brothers and sisters, this is not about a Jerusalem after the return from exile. This is about a Jerusalem that is, that is yet to come. A new and better Jerusalem. The Bible has been pointing forward to that day ever since the garden. The incarnation was the inauguration point. It's the hinge point, as I've already said. And we may feel more and more depressed and discouraged by the current condition of the moment, but we must not lose heart, brothers and sisters. We no longer hope in this dying realm. That is what the incarnation, number one, holds out for us. Number two, second reflection, because of that, we are, you, me, Christ, church. Oh, brothers and sisters, we are being prepared as brides to dwell in that new and holy city. And we will be with God forever. Verse 2 and verse, well, verse 2 and 3, but we'll look at verse 2 as well, first. And I saw a new, a new city New Jerusalem, I'm sorry, a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A holy city, a new Jerusalem. We see this all over the scriptures, Galatians 4, Hebrews 12. The city redeemed by Jesus Christ will no longer be trampled, no longer be tossed around by the nations as we see and Revelation 11 indicates, but rather will be adorned as a bride. You and I will be adorned as a bride on that day. We may have our battle scars. We may have our bumps and bruises. We may be tossed to and fro by all kinds of things, sometimes willfully so, if we're honest. Sometimes faithful believers, just like they did in the Old Testament, find themselves falling into these things willfully. And Old Testament prophets liken this to them falling into spiritual prostitution. But even then, this great God who has made a great promise to have a people for himself will, will call and collect his people from all the nations and they will be with him forever, this new heavenly city. See, the thing about the city is the city and the, and the people are one and the same. This is what it seems to indicate here. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heavens for more, be prepared, the city prepared as a bride. See, that's what's happening here. The bride of Christ and the city of God are, God are one and the same, and Christ is their temple. This is why it says there is no temple there, we'll see later on in our time. There is no temple there, why? Because Christ is the temple. They are a holy city. The church redeemed by Jesus Christ will no longer that be that. And even though the God's people are, again, tossed to and fro, trampled about, and mistreated by the world, sometimes willfully, whatever, like we said before, God, like Hosea, if you're familiar with Hosea the prophet, will take and pursue and go after his bride who has turned from him, and he will bring her home. He will bring her home. Friends, he will rescue her. And forgive me for this darkness in this language. He will rescue her. He will rescue us from our whorings. After our hopes and things that do not satisfy. One of my favorite songs, and unfortunately written by now, someone who is publicly, epically deconstructed. 
former singer in Cayman's Call, wrote a song many years ago called Wedding Dress. Maybe you're familiar with it. If you aren't, you should, because it's phenomenal. And it's, if you're not ready for it, it can be a bit offensive. But it deals with Hosea. And it deals with the fact that this points to God rescuing his people from themselves. And it gets to the heart of what we're talking about here this morning. Before the fall, see, God dwelt with us in full, unmitigated shalom with his people in all of creation. And the world had been, and, and ever since that point, the world has been panting to be back in that moment, be back in that presence. But in our own efforts, we can't get there. We can't build a tower tall enough to do that, can we? We can't build cities epic enough to prove that. We can't build cultures strong enough and holy enough to do that, can we? No, only Christ can do that. And that's why then we skip and we see the truth that the incarnation points to something better than everything we've attempted to build in and of ourselves apart from God. And this is why we can skip to, to up, up just briefly, and I'll read it for you in uh, verse 9 of chapter 21, and we'll read... We're going to read through 27, so just, let's just go ahead and, and do it. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the, se uh, of the seven last plagues, and he spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Again, here we are. And he carried me away in that spirit to a great high mountain and shared me, showed me excuse me, the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of the heavens from God having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, a clear as crystal. This is the, the distinction of the people, God's people. They see God's glory. That's what marks them. They, they are aglow with God's glory. A clear as crystal, verse 12. And it had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the city gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. And the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. And he also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. measurement. The wall was built of jasper, and while the city was, uh, was pure gold, like clear glass... The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second was sapphire, the third was a, a gate, the fourth was emerald, the fifth was onyx, the uh, uh, sixth was carnelian, the seventh was chrysolite, and the eighth was beryl, and the ninth was topaz, the tenth was chrysoprase, the eleventh was jacinth, and the twelfth was amethyst. And the twelfth gate, the, the twelve gates where 12 pearls, each of the gates made a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And here's where it gets really good. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. 
And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light. Its lamp is the, la- is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never shut by day. And there will be no night there. there, will be, there um, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But only those who are written... In the Lamb's book of life, the curse of sin that broke all of creation will once again be brought into complete harmony when God dwells with his people again. That's essentially what we just read. See, temple structures in the Old Testament are not, meant, are not, are not merely structures. They are structures that represent relationship, rightly ordered relationship and fundamental relationship with God. This is what they've always represented. And so God's presence with his people, the place that is, and God's relationship with his people, the ruling blessing he has with his people. So then when we think about temple, we think about this narrative that runs throughout the scriptures, we think of it in this manner. You've heard me say it before, God's people dwelling in God's place under God's rule and blessing, Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Incarnation points us to this moment. It points us to the fulfillment of the great temple, the great tabernacle, or where God's presence dwells with his people forever and ever and ever. And so let me just tell you, friends, Ricky Bobby got it wrong if you're familiar with the show, with the movie. It's not just about baby Jesus. It's not just about the warm and fuzzies you get at Christmas. The incarnation is way more than that. It's the battle song. It's the battle anthem for God's people, a new and better nation, a holy nation, not a holy nation that we've made of ourselves, but a nation which God has made holy by himself, where the faithful sing about that day when they will dwell again forever and ever with their God in that heavenly and holy city. And how do we know that that's true? Well, I think it's very clear here. Forgive my candor, but God says so. I mean, just the next verse, and we see it several times here in the remainder of our time. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. I heard a loud voice from where? The throne. God says so. The greatest blessing of heaven is that unhindered fellowship with God himself. The very goal of God's gracious plans of redemption and covenantal arrangements that go throughout the Bible is this. We get God. John Piper writes in his wonderful book, uh, God is the Gospel. He asks the question. I've asked it here before, but it's such a seminal question. If you could get to heaven and God were not there, would you want to be there? For the Christian is no such concept is possible. Because God is heaven. God is the gospel. We get God. The whole point of redemption is that God dwells with his people. 
just like he did in the garden. It was lost. He's right. Look at other passages that support this idea. It runs, again, doesn't just run in the New Testament, Isaiah 7.14, which of course is foreshadowed, uh, which is realized in Matthew chapter 1, which foreshadows that tabernacle relationship where God tabernacles with his people. God is with his people, is achieved. Here's what Isaiah 7 verse 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give to you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name God with us. Leviticus 26, 11 and 12. I will make my dwelling. And this is Leviticus, y'all. Leviticus has got the gospel too. <laughs> I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. He dwells with us and he does not disdain us. He loves us. And I will walk among you and you will be and I will and will be your God and you will be my people. I mean, don't remember our time in Ezekiel 37. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. Friends, this is the great hope. We are being made to be a bride for the king, to dwell in, with him forever. Third reflection. Our God will console. And please, hear this, brothers and sisters. He will console every element of your heart, of your body, of your soul, I know you suffer. I know you know I suffer. We know that this is a real reality and we suffer in various kinds of ways and we feel incomplete. We feel broken. We feel like we can't be our full selves and that's all a result of the curse and it's there and it's not going to relent until we trust and rest in Christ. And those who do, even if we continue to stumble our way through this life until he comes, and we will, and you've heard me say before, the Christian life is a one of a limp, Right? It's a limp. He says, though, in verse 4, I will wipe away every tear from your eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be uh, mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. So by eliminating, by wiping away every tear and eliminating death, mourning, and pain, God reverses the curse that had entered into the world through human sin and rebellion. What's wrong with you, brother and sister, and you know this, is that we are at enmity with God. That is the fundamental breaking point. And we can be right with God by trusting in His Son, Jesus. By comparison, the old order that is coming to an end that's grown tired. The old order, the new cosmic order is radically different. The new cosmic order is a place where righteousness will dwell. It's a place where God will wipe away every tear from every eye. It's a place where death shall be no more. It's a place where creation will be set free from the bondage of decay. 
It's a place where the perishable, perish, where that, is, that has been perished, will be raised and transformed into the imperishable. It's a place where the redeemed will rejoice in the eternal presence of God and the Lamb. But he doesn't just end there. Continue on, he says. Again, kind of a capstone here. We said God said from the throne, verse 5, and he who's seated on the throne. So we go back to the voice on the throne. He says, behold, I am making all things new. Brothers and sisters, he is dunking, he's making it new. Oh, it may feel painful. It may feel like a, it may feel like a jaunt but he is making all things new for you this morning. And he said, write it down. These things are, these words are trustworthy and true. Write it down. And that's, that, 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 that's, that is God saying, bank on it. It's his covenantal seal. My word says it's true. Brothers and sisters, this morning, whatever you find you're ailing with, whether it's struggle with sin or whether it's struggle from feeling close to God, whether it's a struggle to have relationships that are fulfilling or whatever other things that are happening, maybe it's a physical ailment, whatever it may be, this is the seal of God's covenant. Jesus makes all things new. And you can put your full weight of assurance on that fact. Write it down. Write it down. Don't forget it. Fourth reflection. Finished it. The final one. Because this is the biggie. The full work of both judgment this world has earned and the redemption that God is earning for his people is finished. The full judgment of both, the full work of both judgment that this world has earned and the redemption that God has earned for his people is finished. Verse 6, and he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. I am all and all. I am everything. It is done. The destruction of God's enemies. First chapter, go back, look at chapter 16 of, of, of Revelation. And the salvation of his saints are both completed. The Alpha and the Omega, the, the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, as we all know, reminds us that the Lord stands beyond the universe's beginning and its end. And he is the sovereign creator and consummator, the first and the last. This is your God. And he finishes what he starts. He finishes what he starts. This is why the incarnation brings such exuberant praise. Why? We'll keep on going. To the thirsty, I will give spring of water of life with what without payment you don't have to pay for it you don't have to pay for the grace and mercy that god gives you you don't have to earn it you gives it without payment and then he goes on the one who conquers will have this heritage 
and I will be his God, and he will be my son. In other words, the one who leans in on that truth that the spring of life is given with you without payment, you will live on that rock all your life, and you who conquer and live with that kind of heritage, I will be your God, and you will be my son. The spring of life is the throne of God and the Lamb, the throne of grace, because here the thirsty drink without payment by God's free gift. You can see that in Isaiah 55. And the one who conquers, this is, of course, paying attention to the promises, promises to conquerors who will come, who are, who are summed up as this assurance of this new heaven and new earth. Of course, he will be my son. It's a promise of David's descendants. It's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But it's also extended and includes those who belong to Jesus, you and I. This is why Paul can say with the full weight of his assurance in Romans 8, we are more than conquerors who are in Christ Jesus. This is ours. The full weight of your redemption. The full weight, everything that was needed to be accomplished and earned for you has been done. And now you just come to the throne of grace and you drink deeply of it for the rest of eternity. But there's sad news. Because good news always comes on the heels of sad news. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. See, the conquerors blessedness contrasts with the death awaiting those who've renounced their faith who have denied their faith or who have denied who god is and his rightful rule over their life they've done so either by cowardice or compromise or idolatry or sensuality whatever it may be this is why. This is why the sorcerers use things like, like of Egyptian and Babylonian magicians in the Old Testament, and, and they themselves gave themselves to false gods, false hopes. And friends, this is nothing less than what we see in our age. It gets recapitulated in a million different ways throughout human history, but we know the moment in which we live in. But friends... This is where our hope is, and this is, the, this is the balance of it, yes? For those of us in this room, we, we trust, or at least uh, as far as I can tell, the majority of the people who are in this room are here because you have, the balance of it is you're drinking of free grace. Praise be to God for that. And remember that, dear brother and sister, this morning. But perhaps there are some in here who are not, and, and right now you need, you need to come to the balance of things. And I would just encourage you, on, out of this message in the incarnation, Drink freely of grace today. Trust in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Maybe you've grown dull. Maybe you've been a believer. Maybe you've been around this all your life and you just grew dull. And this is, just, this, this is exactly what you need to hear. You need to hear that this is the balance. This is, this is the two ways. There's only two ways. Know how many different ways we try to carve out about how life should work. There's really ever only been two ways, yeah? And so then it prompts me to turn and i'm just going to ask two questions this morning to finish this thing up two questions i have nothing else written around these questions 
There are just two questions. And it goes back to the theme that I tried to press out at the very beginning. This, why does the incarnation result in such praise? And so my first question is related to that. How can we not praise him? How can God's people not rejoice in this? Why would we not enjoy uh, rejoicing this? I'm sorry. How how can we not rejoice this? I mean, I, I just it seems it seems unfathomable to me to know that we see this this in, incomprehensible grace, this incomprehensible reality that's unfold us, and yet somehow or another there are people who miss it, and there are unfortunately Christians who miss it too, because we get whatever wrapped into it. And so that leads me to my second question: Why will you not rejoice in this? Why, would you, why will you not rejoice in this this morning, dear brother, dear sister? Why would you leave this place not doing everything in your power, inviting the Holy Spirit, asking and begging the Holy Spirit, even in this moment, to give you this, this kind of exuberant joy in your heart? Why would you not do that? Because I will tell you this, if we will not do it, if we will not do it, God will allow it to pass from us. I don't want it to pass from you this morning. I don't want it to pass from me. I know the condition of my heart. I know what my heart can do and has done and will do and continue to creep into all these little uh, valleys of my life. I need today. I need tomorrow. I need the day after and every subsequent way to the day that Jesus returns to be reminded of I have... I am invited to rejoice in this truth. Do not forget the incarnation. Do not forget what it means. Do not come to this table and forget what it means. Do not take that for granted. You're not worthy enough to come to this table, brothers and sisters. That's not what we're implying here. But I'm just telling you, Lord, I, I'm, guys, I'm asking from the Lord to give us the kind of just awareness of his grace towards us this morning in the incarnation that will set our affections firmly in that future day. And that future day, the day of the Lord, will both be a day of great joy, but also a day of great dread. And the question is, which will be true of both the people sitting in this room and the people beyond this room, what will be the balance? What will be the balance? Father, this morning as we come and we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table and we continue in our time to celebrate the incarnation and sing more songs together for a few minutes, oh Jesus, help us now to take this truth and just plant it so deeply in our heart. God, may it stir in us, may it awaken us, may it help us see things that once were beautiful and vivid but have grown dull in our minds or perhaps maybe for the first time help us see things that we have never really seen in our life. Maybe it'll cause an urgency for us to go and share this truth with other friends and family who need to hear it. Whatever, God, the, whatever the outflow of this, God, may it be true here of the people sitting in this room. And we love you, Jesus. It's in Christ's name. Amen.